After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in the house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out from Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, your throne will be established forever. Nathan report to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. And good morning, folks. My name is Darren. If I haven't met you, uh, hello to everyone watching at home. And thank you, Alex, for praying for us. Uh, I have a book, folks, in my office. It's called Speeches uh, That Have Influenced the 21st Century. Uh, you could imagine what kind of um, the, the, the authors of the speech, uh, um, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, uh, Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, and Gandhi. Um, and if you borrowed my copy, you'd find my wedding speech stapled to the back, um, the back page. Um, the words, the speeches contained within this volume, they range from the impressive to, to the brilliant words of influence, words of courage and charm that have stirred the human souls throughout the generations, words that have galvanized armies and words that have set entire nations on new trajectories. I can only imagine what it would have been like to have heard some of these great speeches of history delivered for the first time. And this morning, I'd like to make an argument to you all that Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, is a, there's a speech in it that deserves to be in that book. Uh, and yet, unlike the speeches in my volume, they do not consist merely of human words of resolve or rhetoric and optimism, but rather, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. 
Uh, and it's a word that has shaped human history. It is a word that is shaping human history. And it is a word that is going to continue to shape human history for all time. And hence why I think it should be in this book. It's a tremendous word that God gave to his prophet Nathan to give to King David about the coming promised King Jesus. And it's all framed, interestingly, around David's idea for a building project. And that's why I've called my three points this morning. Um, David's seeking planning permission the correction of the architect, and the ultimate design plan. Now, I must apologize to all the town planners uh, who work in the town planning department who come to our church. Planning permission is one of those strange things. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but no one ever speaks about it with any great sense of positivity. No one says, what did you do this weekend? Oh, a bit of light planning permission. You know, it was great. The guys in the department are so helpful. They make it so easy. You know, no one ever talks about it. It's always talked about in a kind of foreboding sense of doom uh, when people are seeking it out and talking about buildings. And David here, well, he's got a planning problem. He's now the king. We've jumped on a few years in David's life. Uh, he's well into his reign. And we're, we're introduced to him. We're told three things. We're told David is comfortable and secure in his house of cedar. He's in the palace and um, telling us that he, it's built of cedar. It's telling us that David's done quite good. He's no longer in the cave. He's doing well and he's got the nice house. And the second thing we're told is that David and Israel have been given rest from all of their enemies. They're enjoying an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity after all the trouble with the Philistines and Goliath and the civil war with Saul. They'd come through a tough few years. Could you imagine? No COVID, no protests. Now, here was the good times. And we're told that this was all the Lord's doing. The expected rest that God had promised his people was now starting to happen. And the third thing we're told in this time of prosperity and peace is that David has a building problem. He looks down, perhaps from the roof of the palace one evening, and he says to Nathan, I am in the, the house built of cedar, but the ark of the Lord dwells in a tent, we're told. And it's, uh, it's not so much that David's asking a question. He's saying it how it is. And he, he's more, it's like he's saying, Nathan, this isn't great, is it? I'm here and God is over there. I'd like to bring some equality to the situation, Nathan, as he looks at his own house and then he looks at the tabernacle of the Lord. And I suppose it's, um, it, it wouldn't be illogical of us to assume that David was thinking about the temple, especially given future biblical events. Um, but there, there's actually no mention of, of a temple or a building here. And, uh, um, and, and, and in fact, anywhere actually in Second Sam, Samuel. It's more like in this um, blueprint that David is suggesting he'd like something more appropriate for the ark of the Lord given that he is in the palace. And it's almost, I think, a very simple application from 2 Samuel 7 is we're so quick, aren't we, when, when we finally get our lives sorted out, we then think, oh, what can I do for the Lord now? Now I've got my life sorted out. I've got my house, got my money, I've got my peace, I've got my establishment. Now I will do something for you, God. And I think it's a reminder for us that even the very best humans with the best motives and the best intelligence and all the planning in the world we can so often get things wrong because we don't quite perfectly understand the situation we are in. We don't have all the information that we need. And the only right way, the only solution is actually to hear a divine correction, to get a word from the Lord. And the correction that David gets is from the architect himself. This word-changing word comes to David 
in two parts. Um, and the first part, it's unlikely that these two speeches happened at the same time, but the first part shows us God's perspective on what David wants to do for God. And uh, the prophet goes, and he, uh, as instructed, verse 5, and, and he says to David, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? It's almost as if God understands what's going through David's mind better than David knows himself. And it seems to be the challenge that God gives to David is not so much a critique of the idea of an actual house or, or temple itself, but more so that David was not going to be the one who was going to do it. You see, the ark, the tabernacle, they were the reality and the symbol of God's presence with his people, the presence of God with his people in Jerusalem and the presence of God that had traveled with the people for so long. Never that God was actually in reality confided to the tent or to the ark. We know this throughout the scriptures. When when Solomon consecrated the actual temple, he didn't he pray. He said, heaven can't contain you, let alone this house. No, God is saying, when he's saying, are you the one to build me a house? It's not exactly no house, David. It's you're not the one who's going to do it. And that's surprising for us if you've been with us over the last month and all we've heard are good things about David. David was God's man. But why wasn't he the one to build the temple? Well, we get our answer in verses six and seven if you look down with me. And, And David challenges, or God challenges David. He says, look, David, I have not lived in a house since I brought the Israelites out of Egypt. For 300 years, David, I have been in the tent of the tabernacle where the ark has resided. I've been traveling with the people, my people, for 300 years, which I prescribed, by the way, from the day of the Exodus. I have traveled, and I have protected, and I have provided. And now, today, you're worried about getting me out of the tent. I've never been restricted to any place, is what God is saying to David. Uh, He's saying, I came to Egypt to break you guys out. Remember, I came to find you and to give you freedom. No, the the ark is the symbol of my presence, but I have never been fixed. So why now, David? And secondly, he says in verse 7, well, it wasn't inappropriate. God says, look, my people have lots of faults. But in verse 7, he says, did I ever say to the elders of Israel they had to build me a temple or a house? No, this was not required. And so this first part of the speech, it lays the foundation for us. But I want to be clear, church, in, in responding rightly to God... The most imp- is the most important thing in life. Um, we are so easily led astray by our instincts and our intuitions and what feels good and what, what feels being true to myself. We devise projects, we build buildings, we can even revise our theology and our doctrine without realizing that God might never have wanted or needed us to do this in the first place, let alone even ask for it. I think it's a very simple application from this passage this morning. David is being challenged to reflect on who God is and what God has done in history, to reflect on the God who tabernacled with his people since the day of the Exodus. And I think it would be very wise for us to reflect on Jesus Christ, who tabernacled, as John tells us, amongst us, who revealed himself and saved us and showed us what God was like. It would be very foolish as of us to quickly rush in and deduce that the God who has revealed himself to us and saved us and died and rose again to think that he might need something from us. What he's saying to David is, I, I've been here all along and, and I've been doing it and I've been saving you and I've been moving with you. 
I don't need you, David, to do anything for me, for I am the Lord who reigns. Uh, What God does require is a practical obedience to his word and a commitment to to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's asked for. And not that we we would go and do some grand project. And well, we begin then with the second speech which is more significant, I feel, as as David gets this correction. It begins in verse 8, and David is firstly challenged to look back. God says, look, remember, you were the shepherd. Now I've made you the king. I've done this for you, David. Um, Your enemies are gone. And then he wants David to look to the future, to the short-term future um, for his family. And he he and Israel get a very personal and wonderful promise that is spelled out in in four ways. It would be a great... Bible study on those verses 9 to 11. But the promise is fourfold, that David's going to get a name that is better than any king that has ever come before. And and through that name, the people are going to be established. They're going to be safe. They're going to be planted. They're going to be rooted. There's going to be peace for all of the people, thirdly. And fourthly, God says he's going to give them a, a complete sense of his rest and his shalom and his blessing. God says, God is saying to David, look, You think you're settled now. You think you've got a house. You think you've got a name. Well, David, better is yet to come for you and your family. It's a wonderful promise for David. And that's why God says to him, it's almost a challenge in verse 11. You think you've got it all. You would build me a house. But God says, I am going to build you a house, David. So it's a wonderful promise of blessing to David and and Israel. Except this house, what God says in verse 11, is not going to be a physical place or a nice building in a nice city, but it's going to be a dynasty that David's line is going to continue. Saul died and that was it. His kingdom was gone. And God is saying to David, you're going to die one day, David, but your kingdom, your generations are going to continue and they will be a blessing to the nation. It's an echo and a repeat of the promise, the wonderful promise in Genesis when God made his covenant to Abraham that God chose Abraham and through Abraham all of the nations were going to be blessed. And God is now expressing the same promise to David and through David except now this blessing is fuller. It would involve a king and a kingdom and God was going to be the one who was going to build it. But then... Strikingly, as David's looked back, and now he's got a promise for the near future for him, we get something that no one expected, something totally mind-blowing. As God says, this kingdom and this king is going to be an eternal one. He is going to build a house that is going to last forever. In verses 13 and verse 16, God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And this is why I'm excited, folks, about this passage. Down, down to my toes. Because this is a piece of theology, a piece of granite in the Bible that, that stretches so far and, 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 and so deep and so high that God says to him, the permanent David of your kingdom, it's never going to come to an end. We see in this promise the ultimate design plan of God as this theology stretches on and on forever. It is a promise that is so vast that every time the Old Testament would speak about the promised Messiah, it would look back and reference this promise in 2 Samuel 7. And every time the New Testament would speak about Jesus as the Messiah and the claims it made about him, it would write that this is the fulfillment 
of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, Such is its reach, such is its awesomeness and its weight of this wonderful promise. And you know why I know this? Because of the very first sentence in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. Do you know what it says? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the ultimate design plan of God, the thread that runs through the whole Bible and holds the entire Bible together is this, that God has promised and God is completing his promises and they are coming true in Jesus Christ. The promises given to Abraham and David, they, they, they stretch up like twin peaks uh, in the Old Testament, high above everything else. And the rest of the story is just joining those dots. The promises to Abraham and David um, come true in Jesus Christ. This is the link that we see here between the promises in Genesis and the fulfillment in Jesus. And they show us that God truly is the master of design. And if that sounds complicated, I, I apologize. I know it's a big piece of theology. But basically, God made a promise to Abraham. He repeated it to David, and it's spelled out and completed in Jesus Christ. And it's going forward forever. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, And this is what you have to preach to yourself. The the practical application of this ancient promise given to David 3,000 years ago, you get confidence in the unshakable plan and purpose of a sovereign God. When you go home this afternoon, I want you all to open up the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 and just let your eyes course down the 41 generations from Abraham to Jesus and see the reliability of God's promises. Do you know how powerful you would have to be to even affect two or three generations of a family line? Every decision, every word, every move. Here is God showing and proving that his promises come true. And here is the truth you need to tell yourself when you feel that you're somehow outside of God's control or some situation feels like it's outside of God's plan for your life or his promises are not faithful. See that God's promises are or have always come true that he has promised. There is no place or no person that is outside of God's control. God always delivers what he promises. And while, of course, yes, this promise obviously had a very short-term perspective for David and his family as Solomon built the temple, um, but now we see an eternal design of God that would stretch beyond Israel and beyond the, the kings of Israel forever, and, and the promises of God finding their completion in the last king of Israel, King Jesus. God doing what he promised. God building a house for his own name. Except it's not a temple, not a building in Jerusalem. But it's his church. It's his people. And now he has come to live amongst them in his spiritual house, the church, by his Holy Spirit. And those in, in, in that house, all of the promises of David start to come true. The peace that is promised to David, the name being known, the rest, they're being established, they become yours. And while David and and his sons died, there was one who would come, a descendant of David. His name is Jesus Christ, and all of God's promises come true in him. So we can take comfort in the sovereignty of God. And you start to realize the Bible is an amazing document, not a collection of 66 books, but one unified piece of theology that is one story of God completing his promise in Jesus Christ. 
It's a wonderful piece of confidence that we can take in our God. But also, we can take comfort in this passage because it shows us the gospel. It shows us God's great love and heart for his people. For remember, David and Abraham, they were not untarnished heroes. Abraham, you know about him, he was a liar. When the heat was on, he sold his wife. He interfered with his servant, and that caused all sorts of problems. David, the anointed king, the man after God's own heart, and in just a few chapters, he'd be committing murder and adultery. If you come here this morning and you think that God's promises could never be true for you because you have sinned so grievously that God could never look on you, can you take confidence that even though the, pa- the Bible has great passages about sin, it has even better passages and wonderful passages about God's grace? And we're told here in this passage that God's grace will never go. You can never be a grace graduate you can never get from under it. You can, you can never sin enough that writes it off. Verse 14 and 15, it says that the relationship between God and, and the kings of Israel, it would be like a father and a son. And uh, God knew that the, the, these, these kings, these adopted sons of his, that they would sin. And he says, I'm going to discipline them when they sin. I, I, I'll challenge them, but I will never remove my love from them. It will never be taken away like it was to Saul. And yet we know today that there is a descendant of David, the last king of Israel, Jesus Christ, who came and he did no sin. He committed no iniquity. So God could say of him, this is my son of whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And yet the hands of men were on him. As the hands of men went on him and put him onto the cross, even though he had done no wrong, so that the sins of the world could be forgiven, so that the people of God could be rescued And how amazing is it that this promised king that was promised to David all those years ago was not just going to be a son through adoption, but it was the eternal son of God himself. It's wonderful. You know, David, this passage, it started, David was thinking about doing something for God. And God turned around and said to David, David, no, you have no idea what I am going to do for you and through you and what I'm going to promise to you. I'm going to promise the universe through you, David. The promise, if you are a Christian today, the promise has come. The eternal kingdom of God has begun because Jesus died and rose again. The kingdom of the world is no more and the kingdom of God has begun. And it was promised to David and we see it completed in Jesus Christ. And that's why I hope you're convinced this morning by my argument that this is the most important speech in the whole world. And it gives you an eternal perspective. And my third piece of application is that, well, it gives you hope for the future and it gives you hope for tomorrow. Because if Jesus' kingdom is not eternal, well, then we are the most miserable people who have ever lived. That's what Paul says, isn't it? But when you know that you're welcomed by grace into his kingdom, but nothing that you have done, but everything that God has done for you, that's the hope. That's the hope for Monday morning. It's the hope for your marriage. It's the hope for your work. It's the hope for your parenting. It's a hope and a grace that is so sweetly spoken, made true in Jesus, and one that God has promised he will never, ever take away if we put our trust in the promised king. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for these wonderful promises, these pieces of theology that we struggle 
to comprehend. Well, I pray by your grace, Lord, and through your Spirit, that we would see how you have completed your promises to David in Jesus Christ. Would we see our rescuer king, Lord, who committed no wrong, but came through the line of David to go to the cross to forgive the sins of men and women. Help us, we pray, to see this, to rejoice in it, Lord, and to put our trust in you, even when situations and circumstances seem out of your control. Would we look to your promises and always take confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.